let us now turn to uh, the book of Ephesians, and we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, recently, I, I watched a, a video, maybe the kind of video that you've seen yourself of, of uh, children, even, even babies, uh, imitating their daddies, uh, copying their, their facial expressions or uh, copying sounds they make or copying their movements. And uh, you can't help but laugh. Uh, with delight, because it's a delightful thing to see this uh, kind of depiction of this natural kind of instinct uh, that children have, and to see uh, this relationship of love, a relationship which, with uh, godly example and teaching, uh, may teach children to obey their father and mother, and may teach them how to conduct themselves in all different kinds of relationships uh, with others. Now, we've been hearing in the last few weeks how we are to relate to our fellow members of Christ. Uh, last time we considered how we are to do that with hands and words and hearts that uh, reflect our renewal in the image of God. Hands and words and hearts that reflect uh, the new man in Christ, because these are ways in which we show that we are renewed after uh, the image of Christ. And now our text this morning raises our Christian aspirations, our Christian aims to a new level, uh, a higher level yet, we might see. Be like those children, you might say, who copy their father. Uh, in their love and admiration for their daddies, they, they imitate them. But on a higher level, of course, we're admonished here in this passage before us uh, to be imitators of God, imitators of God as dear children. And this is not simply a matter of imitating expressions or, or words or, or sounds, but in our entire lives, in our walk, right? The Bible so often uses that that language of walk to describe our lifestyle, our conduct throughout our pilgrimage, our journey in this life. Well, what does that mean to be imitators of God? Well, in the next few weeks, uh, we will look at three ways in which we are to be like God in our Christian walk. And uh, we can see how they, they relate to clearly revealed attributes or characteristics of God. God is wise, and in verse uh, 15, we are exhorted to walk as wise. 
And uh, God is light, we read in 1 John. And uh, in this passage before us, we're exhorted in verse 8 to walk as children of light. And it's also in, in John's first epistle that we hear those words, God is love. And in our text this morning, we are called to walk in love, to be like God in, in this way. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As dear children of God, we want to focus on that, first of all. As those who are beloved of God, uh, together as his children. And uh, this this summons of our text is just an amazing uh, call of God's grace to us. Grace in the fact that we are indeed addressed as children as children of God. Uh, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are, by grace. We are adopted as children of God. In fact, that passage in 1 John also says that uh, that perfect likeness to Him will, is our final destiny. We shall be like Him. And uh, when we see Him as He is, the clearest, most glorious manifestation of God in the person of His Son will appear to us at His coming, and we shall be like Him, perfectly conformed to the image of God, the likeness of God. To become like Him is the most honorable and the most privileged calling that we have in this world, and it's a shared calling. It's not like a vocation. There are very many different vocations among us. But every Christian, whatever their circumstance, whatever their age, they share this high and privileged calling to be imitators of God. In First Peter 1, uh, Peter addresses the saints as those also who are to uh, live as obedient children as those who call upon the Father, and uh, as those who are then to be holy, even as as I am holy. Peter quotes from the Old Testament, God's calling to be like him in holiness. It's an amazing calling of God's grace. And it's a prominent theme also in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few examples of that in Luke chapter 6. We read in verse 36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. And that follows a description of such mercy in uh, these words. Love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. It doesn't mean that you will become sons of the Most High or you'll earn that privilege, but you will, you will demonstrate in your conduct that you are sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. And on another occasion, very similarly, the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, says in verse 44 and 45, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun shine, rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And this description of what it means to be like God makes clear that uh, this love that we are to uh, have is not limited and confined to uh, the family of God. It's not simply the practice of children together towards one another, but it is uh, a characteristic of God that we are to exhibit also in our dealings with others, even those who may treat us as enemies. We are to do good to them. And in doing so, we are demonstrating a, a kind of love that God has, which we are to imitate. An amazing calling that we're given. It's a love that, God, that reflects God's graciousness to sinners. We heard that in the last verse of the previous chapter where we read, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. They're the example of Christ as the one through whom we are forgiven is held before us in this summons. So it's a prominent theme of our Lord's teaching. It's a high calling. And it's a way of life that shows the renewal of our nature. Walking in love shows a renewal of our nature. It shows that we are no longer in the flesh. It means that we are no longer dominated by that depraved and sinful nature that we have in Adam. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. But by grace, God's children are able to walk so as to please Him. Not because of perfection, but because of their union with Jesus Christ, but also because in union with Jesus Christ, they also share in His Spirit and are renewed in His image. In contrast to being uh, of the flesh, we are of God uh, by regeneration. You know that a monkey could be taught to imitate a human. A monkey could be taught to imitate uh, gestures and actions and sounds, but it would be totally unnatural. He would simply mimic behavior without any kind of shared nature. But imitating God is not simply a matter of observing some outward conduct in a mechanical way, but it's to reflect our Heavenly Father in whose likeness, likeness we have been renewed. To merely mimic God would be inauthentic. In John chapter, or first John chapter four, we, we read of this distinction of grace that makes us differ from those who are, uh, in the flesh, he says in verse 4 of chapter 4, you are of God, little children. In verse 6, we are of God. Now that language of God does not simply mean that God created us. It doesn't mean that we're related to him in some uh, vague general way. Verse 7 makes it clear. It says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so we are of God through the new birth, through the regeneration of our nature. So that we, Peter even says, and it's almost a, uh, a shocking kind of statement, which if it were not inspired would lead us to recoil with something that, uh, uh, at something that sounds irreverent. It says we've been partakers of the divine nature. Not that all of God's attributes are communicated to us. There are incommunicable attributes. But his moral attributes in measure are communicated to creatures whom he renews in his image. 
but that there is a natural likeness, you might say, between the love that we have and God's own love, reflecting a renewal in His image by grace. So we are to walk in love as dear children of God. And then in stark contrast to that, we are to walk in love not as the sons of disobedience. That's the language used in uh, verse 6 of our text to describe the people of this world. They're sons of disobedience. Now that's not, not a term that leads us to focus on gender as if it excludes females. Of course not. That's not the point. Even this language, sons of disobedience, really describes their nature. They're characterized by disobedience. It's like it's in their blood. That's who they are. That's what characterizes their nature as depraved and fallen. Again, we see the characteristic negative aspect of uh, the teaching here before us. And again, that's simply a, a feature of biblical clarity with regard to its ethical teaching. You know, some people might say, Pastor, you've got to just be positive. And yes, pastors and teachers must be positive, but they must not just be positive, or their teaching will not reflect the pattern of Scripture in contrasting the positive with the negative. And we're not merely given the positive here, but we're given the negative. Again, Peter does the same. As obedient children, he says, not conforming yourself to your former lusts in your ignorance... There's a contrast. And that contrast is brought out very clearly in this passage. And we need to see and feel that contrast between likeness to God and conformity to the, the vulgar and the crude and the, the lewd words and desires and, and conduct of a, of a lost and wicked world. But, verse 3 says, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. In other words, the immorality that's described here in verses 4 and 3 and 5, this immorality has no place in the church. That's repeated in a couple different ways in our text. It's not to be named. It's it's not fitting for saints. And you know that the word saints does not refer to uh, certain super-Christians that have re, uh, achieved a certain level of holiness and might be canonized by official pronouncement of a church. No, saints are those to whom this letter is addressed. And that includes all those who are in Christ. That includes children as well. And that means that children also must be aware that when they hear dirty jokes and they learn new words that make them uncomfortable, they ought not to show that they're bold and they're able to say the same things that their friends say, but they ought to let no corrupt communication or filthy talk or dirty jokes or lewd, suggestive talk characterize their way of speech. It's not fitting. We're not to imitate the world, unbelievers that find these things funny and, and entertaining. And we live in a culture that really has, has gone down the skids in the last decades in this regard. 
And I know there's been vulgarity and profanity in our lost world uh, since the fall, but there's no question that anyone who is my age or older know that there's been a marked uh, increase of crudeness and lewdness and vulgarity. You would never hear the uff F word on, on a television set when I was a child. And now it's commonplace. So many vulgar expressions that just characterize the common speech of people today. God's word makes categorical judgments. In verse 5 it says, This you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now we could paraphrase this this way and say, People whose lives are characterized by these sins, make no mistake about it. They are not Christians. They are not believers. And we have such categorical judgments made often in, in Scripture, often prefaced by a warning. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have another instance of that. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he goes on to say. Again, speaking of the distinction that God's grace made in those who are now washed are sanctified, they're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians, we have the list of the, the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Categorical judgments. Now, how many preachers today would dare to say, this you know, speaking to their congregation? Do you not know? As if, of course you do. As tragic it is as it is, I think there are many congregations, so-called Christians' congregations, who have been brainwashed into thinking, there's no judgment in our church. We accept everyone just the way they are. We're all sinners, and all sins are the same, and we all sin the same. And see, those are half-truths, right? Yes, the church of Jesus Christ ought not to be characterized and marked by condemnation and judgment. It ought to be characterized by the proclamation of the gospel that addresses the reality of sin. And indeed, the church ought to be a place where people are accepted when they come in the door, whether they're Christians or not. They ought to be accepted in the sense of welcomed and seen as fellow human beings with a desire that they would hear the gospel. And indeed, we acknowledge that we all sin, but we also know from Scripture that there is a difference, isn't there, between falling into sin and fighting against sin and confessing in sin and repenting of sin and living in sin, practicing sin as a way of life. And the scripture is clear that those who practice sin in that manner, they are yet to be born again. They are yet to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because if they were true Christians, they would stop it. They would fight it. And they would grow in obedience. 
fact is in our day the professing church is full of people who defend the very sins that are that are described here. And they defend them as a right. Everyone has a right to love whomever they wish. That's the way it's put, right? In very loving terms. Very compelling sounding terms. And those who dare to repeat the, the judgments of Scripture, just repeat them, are themselves judged as immoral, as actually immoral, as wrong for doing that. God's word faithfully warns against deception on these things. Do not be deceived, Paul says. We heard it also in in First Corinthians. There are tremendous pressures on us to back off from biblical teaching on these matters. Because to maintain biblical views of sexuality for, for one thing that is highlighted in these, in these verses, and however it's prevent, presented, however gently, however calmly, to maintain biblical views on sexuality, well, that is to target people. That's to attack whole communities, right? That's the language that's used to describe those who dare to repeat and uphold what the Bible says. You are attacking people. It's the language of violence. You are, in effect, guilty of committing violence against people, even by using such language as the Scripture uses. Now, how do you stand up to that? How do young people stand up to that when their whole environment, in many instances would send that message to them. To uphold biblical teaching is to invite judgment against yourself as a hater. And who wants to be judged as a hater? In many situations, in many environments, it's to stand alone and tempting you to think, how could all these people be wrong? Am I the only one that thinks this way? These are decent, intelligent, nice people. And on the other hand, affirming people's lifestyle choices, affirming people's way of identifying themselves, well, that's the kind thing to do. That's the sensitive thing to do. That's the loving thing to do. Don't you want to be kind and sensitive and loving? Well, you won't be perceived that way however kindly and lovingly you try to uphold the Bible's teaching on these matters, in your practice and in your testimony. But we must love people with the truth. We must love people in a way that's aimed at saving them from sin, not sharing with them in their sin, either in practice or in acceptance or in affirmation or in non-judgment. You know, these churches that try to draw the line anywhere else and where Scripture draws the line, eventually they start crossing every line. There are a lot of churches that are trying to maintain a biblical morality and their official pronouncements, but they're not exercising discipline for heresy. And heresy is when professing Christians have adopted the LGBTQ agenda and way of thinking. That is doctrine that is incompatible with the teaching of the Bible. And they ought not to continue as members of the Christian church in good standing, whatever their practice is, because they've adopted teaching that is contrary to a credible Christian confession. They call evil good and good evil. 
God's word faithfully warns against deception. We're to love people in truth. Not then as the sons of disobedience, but then rather positively we are to walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us, Paul says, and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. A sweet-smelling aroma. It's talking about sacrifice. In fact, that language is used to describe God's response to animal sacrifice. Way back in Genesis chapter 8, where you read that uh, after the flood, Noah took of all the clean animals and he offered uh, a sacrifice to God, and it was a soothing aroma to God. In fact, you go to the book of Leviticus, the first three chapters, it's repeated like eight times for a sweet-smelling savor, an offer of fire to the Lord, a sweet-smelling savor or aroma. What's it describing? It's describing animals being burned. That doesn't sound like a very sweet smell, does it? But why does the Bible describe that as a sweet aroma to God? Well, it's because it's the way in which God reveals his love and mercy through justice, through the vindication of his honor and holiness in a way of righteousness. God demonstrates himself to be just. Yes, there must be the shedding of blood. Yes, an innocent creature must die. Throughout the Old Covenant, there were like rivers of blood of innocent creatures, not moral creatures, but creatures whom God made, creatures whom God values and protects in many ways. And yet he required that their blood should be shed. And he describes those sacrifices as pleasing to him. Why? Because they demonstrated his way of forgiveness. They demonstrated the the reality of his love in a way that doesn't compromise his truth. And they all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would offer the once-for-all sacrifice that actually does take away sin, because he is the lamb without spot and blemish. Not just that he had no physical deformities, but he had no sin. And he offered himself to God. He is not only the perfect sacrifice, he is the the only priest who could ever offer such a sacrifice. He offered himself. He offered himself in absolute consecration to the Father's will. And this indeed was the way in which God accomplished his saving purpose, the supreme demonstration of his love, and the suffering of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly, offered himself. And see, that made him different than all the other sacrifices of the Old Testament. No, these animals were forced to die. But the Lord Jesus Christ, willingly, in consecration to his Father, you might say in worship, offered himself. And how delightful that was to the Father. How pleasing it was to see the consecration and the innocent love and obedience of his beloved son, even unto death, to make way for what? For the make way for the salvation of sinners like you and me. 
Here is a multifaceted, amazing display of love. The love of God in His provision of a Savior, His own beloved Son. The love of God in His delight in this sacrifice that His Son offered according to His will. And there is the love of the Son, His willing free oblation to the Father and His love for sinners. He loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's testimony. It's a testimony that belongs to every Christian. And you see, all these things really combine to give weight to this calling, to walk in love as Christ loved us, in a sacrificial love, in a love that is active, as Christ loved us. And then finally, walk in love as thankful children. There's this little phrase at the end of verse 4. It's one that could easily be missed as to its significance, which says, but rather giving of thanks. But rather giving of thanks. And this this seems like kind of a surprising alternative uh, to the sins that are listed there. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather pure talk, wholesome talk. Holy talk. You might think that would be the obvious contrast, right? But rather giving thanks. Thanksgiving. Now, among those sins that are listed here, there's covetousness. And uh, when you think about that, you can see that thanksgiving makes sense. Because what is covetousness? Well, it's, it's described as idolatry. But covetousness is that Inclination that drives us to seek our pleasure, our happiness, our meaning in things other than God's will. In other words, we judge God's ways as insufficient for us. Rather than being grateful for them, we want other things. And in a way, you can see that that's behind all those sins that are listed there. A dissatisfaction with our wives or our husbands or our situation, a dissatisfaction with God's good and holy will. Rather than being thankful for it, we want to transgress it. We want to go beyond it. And so there's a sense in which, in a very comprehensive way, thankfulness really is like the alternative to all these sins. And I trust that we can understand that in a, in a broad sense as we recognize, indeed, that the response of our lives to God's saving grace and mercy is to be one of thankfulness and gratitude. And that's to be uh, expressed not only in words that are the opposite of filthy, dirty words, but it's to be expressed in lives that are the opposite of the description of the sons of disobedience. Gratitude is the most powerful, sanctifying attitude. God has shown such great love to us. How can we respond in a fitting way? We've heard of a lot of things that are not fitting. Well, one thing is fitting, and that we should be profoundly and deeply grateful to God. And we should express that with our words and with our worship, with our testimony in the world, with the way we live that shows that we are content with God's commandments. They are good. We delight in them. We're grateful for them. And this way, we might stand out. Not simply by abstinence, right? 
Not simply by what we're against and what we don't do, but by true gratitude. That brings honor to our great and good God and Heavenly Father. Amen.